So, by the start of 1461, Richard, Duke of York, was dead, as was his chief ally, Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury. The forces of York, though not broken, were certainly scattered. The Earl of Warwick still held London, and critically the King himself. But only Edward Earl of March, York's eldest son, remained with men in the field, and he lay far to the west at the great Yorkist stronghold of Wigmore, near Ludlow. Though it was deep in winter, Queen Margaret did not hesitate. Amassing a vast northern army, bolstered by Scots, she began the long march south in February to retake London and free her husband, Henry. At the same time, she ordered Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, to stop Edward of March from moving to support Warwick. So, neither Warwick nor March could support each other. They were on their own. At Ludlow, young Edward was gathering his marcher allies to Wigmore Castle, knowing that Jasper Tudor was approaching through Wales. He dare not set out for London to support Warwick until he had dealt with the approaching Lancastrian force. It was a crisp early morning in February, most likely the second, but possibly the third, St Blaise's Day. When Edward drew up his men in their battle array at dawn, a wondrous, and to the medieval eye, a terrible sight greeted them. Ice crystals in the air formed what we would call a parhelion, three suns low in the freezing sky. Many must have thought it was an ill omen, but Edward, showing his characteristic coolness under the most severe pressure, turned the moment to his advantage, claiming boldly that it was a sign of God's favour for their cause, because it was a manifestation of the Holy Trinity in the sky. Did this episode make much difference to the outcome of the impending battle? I doubt it. But Edward himself always made a difference in battle. No man could mistake him on the field, for he was an exceptionally tall, well-built warrior, encased in the finest armour and wielding weapons of devastating power. The Lancastrian army that faced him that day, where two roads met at Mortimer's Cross, was a disordered one. There were Welshmen under Jasper Tudor and his father Owen, but the weakest link was on the left flank, where James Butler, Earl of Wiltshire, led a ragtag assortment of foreign mercenaries and Irishmen. Little detail is known of this battle at all. The Irish appear to have fought savagely and noisily, but wore little armour and used darts and spears rather than the heavy weapons employed by the English. They were slaughtered by Edward's infantry, and though the Welsh fought well, they too were eventually overwhelmed and destroyed. Many hounded into the nearby River Lug, where they drowned or froze to death. The Earl of Wiltshire escaped. Indeed, he was gaining something of a reputation as a runner. Jasper Tudor also managed to get away, but his father was not so fortunate. Edward, no doubt still seething from the death of his father and younger brother Edmund, 
to whom he was especially close, executed Owen Tudor and other leaders at Hereford. Because Jasper Tudor and Wiltshire had escaped, Edward could not assume that the way was now clear for him to advance on London. Also, the battle had been hard fought, and he needed some time to replenish and strengthen his army. As a result, he waited in the west during most of February for news of Warwick or the Queen's army. Queen Margaret's army was coming south like some great juggernaut, carving such a path of destruction that many fled before it, arriving as refugees with lurid tales which grew ever more terrible with the telling. Panic gripped those in its path, though what evidence we have suggests that it behaved very much like other armies on the move. It needed to be fed, watered and amused. It suited the Yorkist propagandists, however, to present the army as a murdering horde of northerners who threatened life as they knew it. But the Lancastrian army boasted not only the Queen, Prince of Wales and the northern lords, Northumberland and Clifford, but also the Dukes of Exeter and Somerset and the Earls of Devon and Shrewsbury, all of whom, remember, had already marched their men north to support the Queen in the first place. So hardly an entirely northern army. Meanwhile, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, had assembled a strong army to meet it, with the support of the Duke of Norfolk, the Earls of Suffolk and Arundel, and his own brother, John Neville, Lord Montague. Warwick set out on the road north from London to meet the Lancastrians head-on. With him he took the king, in whose name, in theory, he was still acting. The two armies met on the 17th of February, 1461, at St Albans, where you may recall Warwick was quite successful in 1455. Well, he was rather less successful this time. The battle was a brutal and confusing affair, so like every other battle then, but I shall say little about it because the evidence of what actually happened is both patchy and conflicting. Suffice to say that Warwick lost the battle, probably without most of his army engaging with the enemy at all. The brunt of the Lancastrian assault was borne by only his vanguard, under the command of John Neville. As a result, the vanguard was obliterated, and the rest of the army simply disintegrated. Warwick also contrived to lose possession of Henry VI, which meant that the Yorkists could no longer claim to be anything other than traitors. The Second Battle of St Albans was most definitely not Warwick's finest hour, and his defeat left the way open for the Queen, reunited with King Henry, to march on London. When on the 19th of February news of the disaster reached Edward Earl of March, he set off eastwards at once, with every man he could gather, and a few days later he met up in the Cotswolds, with one hopes a rather chastened Earl of Warwick. With the Lancastrian army at the gates of London, Edward had a chill decision to make. The Act of Accord, agreed by the Lords the previous year, had made his father, Richard Duke of York, the heir apparent. Edward inherited that right to the throne, 
but it was clear that the moment the Queen arrived in London, the act of accord would be torn into tiny little pieces and cast into the wind. If Edward and Warwick fought against the Queen now, they would be forced to depose Henry VI and put Edward in his place. The alternative was to flee the country forever. Edward's decision would either bring peace at last or plunge the country into another bout of warfare. Well, I'm afraid there's no prize for guessing what he chose to do.